0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It is Easter plus one, and uh, we are here, and, and welcome also to all who are joining us online. Just uh, so thankful that we have the chance to gather uh, as a church family and not just celebrate and worship once a year on a holiday or a special day, uh, but that we have the opportunity to open God's Word and to remember who He is every day of our lives and to encourage one another as we come together as a church family. Uh, Looking forward to the opportunity we have this morning to do that. Uh, This morning, we're going to be launching into a new sermon series uh, that will take us the next four weeks. And really, this sermon series is a series that is one year in the making, at least inside of my mind and inside of my heart, uh, just as I have been processing the world in which we live. Uh, because we live in a, a challenging time, right? This has been a difficult era to live through, the last 12 months or so. You know, I, I've likened it recently to a game of Dizzy bat. I don't know how many of you have ever played this game, Dizzy Bat, but uh, it's a relay game that I think was invented by Satan himself. Um, but you, you line up in teams and you run down to a line and you grab a baseball bat and you put one end of the bat on your forehead, you put the other end on the ground and you spin around 10 times really fast before you try to stumble back to the start line and the next person repeats that process again and again. Well, invariably, at least for me, every time I participate in this game, I end up flat on my back with my world spinning, unable to catch my bearings. And really, the last year, as we have lived it out as a society, has been kind of a game of dizzy bat, right? Around and around and around we go with no relief, with no let up. The articles that are sent to us, things we read, things we we watch on YouTube videos and, and podcasts and social media feeds, have just sent us spinning to where it's difficult for us to know up from down and left from right. How do we make sense of a world with a number of ethnicities? How do we make sense of human suffering in the world today? How do we make sense of of, of agendas that are being pushed from one direction or another that are spinning us around and around and around and around? How do we, as followers of Jesus, not just survive in this era, but how do we walk through it? How do we walk through it maintaining a perspective that allows us to view today's world through a Christian lens? Well, friends, over the next few weeks, my hope is that that we will see how to do that together. We're going to begin today in part one by looking at Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, but we're going to continue over the next four weeks kind of unpacking these ideas in four movements. Now, often at Wildwood, our, our sermons are a part of series, and you can come to part one and part three and part six, and you kind of hopscotch your way through. And I understand how that is, life is busy. But in this series, I would really encourage you uh, to make all four parts, whether that's in person or you go back to watch it online, because this is really one message in four sections that will hopefully orient us to viewing our world through a truly Christian lens. In this series, we're going to look at a number of things that will help calibrate our brains to the way that God sees things in a truly Christian way. This is important because the world in which we live, this is nothing new, the world in which we live has been trying to spin us and to cause our perspective to drift away from God from the very beginning. The, The Apostle Paul said To the Colossians in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, you've come into a relationship with Jesus, continue to live inside of that relationship, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But then he continues, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all in authority, all rule and authority. See, friends, there is an influence in this world. In other words, if we just keep in a steady state, we will not drift towards God. We, act, we actually will drift away from him because the world in which we live is trying to marinate us in human traditions, and elemental spirits of this world, philosophies, and empty deceit. Paul would say this also to the Romans in chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So friends, it's important for each and every one of us, whether we've been a Christian five minutes or fifty years, It's important for us to continue to have our perspective calibrated according to God's truth, to continue to have our minds renewed so that we are not taken captive by the elemental spirits and philosophies of this world. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at how it begins with understanding who God is, not the God that we imagine, but the God who actually is. Next week, we're going to talk more about us, we were created by God on purpose and for a purpose. But what happened? We'll see that two weeks from now. The world is not the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you noticed. It's a little challenging. How do we get here? Well, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then we'll end by talking about the best solution. When we properly understand the problem, we can look for the right solution in Christ. And so as followers of Jesus, I call us together over the next four weeks to have our perspective calibrated, have our minds renewed by God's truth. The first movement in this series we're going to see is understanding the God who is and not just the God we imagine. And we're going to see this by looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, when the Apostle Paul goes to a very special place. Where did he go? Well, he went someplace that caused him to say, we're not in Kansas anymore. Now, that line, of course, is not from the Apostle Paul. That line is from who? Dorothy, right? And Dorothy said it because in the 1930s or whatever it was, she was swept up in a tornado and she came down in the land of Oz. And upon arriving in that place and seeing you know, the, the the wonders of that world. She looks at her little dog, Toto, and says, Toto, you all have seen this movie. I, I hope we would do as well with John 3, 16. But she says, "Where well, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? There was just an acknowledgement that her world had changed. And in Acts 17, what we see is that the Apostle Paul shows up into a section of the world that was very different from the world that he had grown up in. See, the Apostle Paul had grown up studying at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel. He had grown up in the Ivy League of of the Jewish religion. He, he He had grown up inside of a synagogue, which was a place of worship for Jews. That was where he was most of his life. And so he had grown up around people that had a shared set of assumptions that began from a similar place that understood similar truth. But in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey, he wanders into the city of Athens, sovereignly directed by God. And when he shows up at Athens, he looks around and he goes, I'm not in the synagogue anymore. I'm in Athens. I'm not in Kansas anymore. Well, how did he know that? Well, Paul knew that because as he looked around, there were elements of worship and worldview that were different from his own. It says in Acts 17, 16, now while Paul was waiting for his friends at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. Everywhere he looked, there were idols, there were temples, there were altars to all kinds of made-up gods. This was not a place that was sitting around having quiet times in the prophet Isaiah. This is a place that was Neck deep in the worship of other gods. Because of that, Paul would say in Acts 17, verses 22 and 23, he says to them, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. How religious? So religious that Paul says, I can't go anywhere that I'm not tripping over an idol or stumbling upon an altar or seeing a temple to another God. He says, I have observed the objects of your worship everywhere. That I've gone. But though Athens was full of religion, it was not full of a religion that gave them any kind of moral compass, because their religion was ultimately just a a projection of their own foils and problems. You know, the Greek mythology, we've we've read it, we've studied it at times, right, in school. What do we know about it? Well, their, their gods were, were sinful. Their gods were problematic. Their gods were just projections of their own personality. Paul looks around and he sees a religion that is everywhere but has no moral center. One of the historians would say of the Greek religion, he says, the Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and the powers of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and amusement was, but was entirely destitute of moral power. So into this area, he's not in the synagogue, he's in Athens and all around him is pagan religion. But not only all around him is pagan religion, but also around him are a number of different philosophical ideas. Approaching Paul were both Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoics philosophers, they also conversed with him They said, what is this guy talking about? Trying to figure out what he was saying. Well, where does this come from? Who were the Epicureans and the Stoics? These were two rival philosophical groups. One group, the Epicureans, did not believe in God. They believed in pleasure. And we gather meaning in life by merely doing what feels right and best to us. Devoid of of any kind of reason or anything. Just whatever feels good, do it. That's the Epicureans. And, And the Stoic philosophers were different. They believe that you found meaning in life not by experiencing all pleasure, but you found meaning in life by just being reasonable in all things, stepping away from pleasure in order to be unaffected by the world around you, kind of caught in your own ideas and thoughts. So, Paul walks into this town where he is surrounded by pagan worship, where he is surrounded by philosophers who are espousing different worldviews, and yet. In this environment, Paul still proclaims the same message. What message did Paul proclaim in that city? Well, the message he proclaimed was about Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, how Paul got there might be slightly different. He didn't turn to Isaiah's prophecy among them. But the message he proclaimed was the same. Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection had meaning not just in the synagogue, but it had meaning and application and need in Athens as well. Everyone needed this message. And so Paul proclaimed it. Now, I think that is super important for us to, to pause for just a moment and to remember the implications of that reality. What that lets us know is that Jesus and the resurrection and God and our connection to Him that that is something that has priority, precedence, and importance no matter where we are. Not just when we're in this room, and not just when we're around people who think like we do, but when we are anywhere in this world, there are implications of this truth. This message works everywhere. It it is important for all to hear it, and for all to ultimately embrace it. It's the message of Christ. Now, it's also important for us to to pause and to just say for a moment that we are also not in Kansas anymore. Now, we are not in Athens. We're in Norman or wherever you are on the other side of that lens. But wherever we are today, it's important for us to remember that we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the synagogue, we're in Athens. As a society, there may have been a time where our society had an anchor to truth that was fixed, where where we collectively had a a means to appeal to a standard that was outside of ourselves. But as we have lived life in the last year, what have have you learned? Well, you've learned that, that our society no longer has a fixed point to point back to or to anchor to. And so your perspective is no different than than my perspective, is no different than anyone else's perspective. We might imagine it like, like a boat in a harbor. The boat needs to be anchored to something in order to not rock and sway and ultimately sink. As a society, we have unhooked our boat from anything solid. And over the last 50 years, It's gradually begun to drift out to sea until suddenly waves are crashing about it, leaving us dizzied and disoriented. Well, what are some of the waves that are crashing about our boats today in the world in which we live? Well, there's a number of them. One of the waves is is gender definition. How do we know who's a man or a woman? Is it something that that is decided by, by God and sovereignly given to people at the time of their conception and birth? Or is it something that is a matter of opinion and debate? How do we even know how to make a decision about if this is something that is settled or is an open question? Our world is beating us about with waves on this issue. Things like sexuality, Is sex something that God has intended between a husband and a wife inside of marriage, or is sex something that is available for anyone, any way they want to, whatever feels right to them? We live in a world that would say, well, well, who are you to say what is the right way or the wrong way to practice sexuality? Or what about when, when life begins? We live in a world that for the last number of years has wanted to put it to an open question. How do we know when life begins? Does it begin at conception, or does it begin when the mom says it begins? Does it begin after the time of birth? Does it begin at the time of a birth certificate? When does life begin? Our society has been asking that question, and the waves are beating us about, and as we try to answer it, without a fixed point, without an anchor, some boats are beginning to sink. Not only that, but what about the priority of humanity in creation? How do we know that Humans are are more valuable than, than algae or than dogs or cats. We live in a world that wants to put that to an open question. How do we know that humans are special in the order of creation? Apart from a fixed point, we're being beat about left and right by waves. And how about the issue of identity politics? We live in a world that wants to say that what defines us is some combinations of characteristics. That I am a 47-year-old white male, middle income, that's me, and that's how I am defined. And, and there are a number of people that will be just like me based on that description. And someone else might be a 63-year-old African-American woman. And, and someone else might be a, a, you know, uh, somebody who has another set of characteristics. But we live in a world that wants to define us on the basis of our demographics, and say that we must behave like everyone else who is like our demographic and be held responsible for everyone else who is like our demographic. Well, those waves are beginning to hit us left and right and left and right and leaving us dizzying and disoriented because in this world today, how do we answer those questions? We live in a world without a fixed point, and it's beating our boat to shreds. Well, when we think about the waves that are out there right now, we're reminded that that we're not in Kansas anymore. But how do we find that fixed point? Well, friends, we, we find it by looking where Paul offered it inside of Acts 17, same place. And that is that we find that stability by coming and getting to know the God who is, not just the God we imagine. Because the God who is, is so much greater than the God that we imagine. And we need to know that. See, here's the thing. All of us in this room have some concept of God. God means something to you. How do I know that about you? I know that about you because you're at Wildwood at 1015 on a Sunday morning, right? You're you're here today either because you're confused. You, You thought you were going to something else and you stumbled into this place. Or, or you're here because you're curious and you're wanting to learn more. Or, or you're, you're here uh, because you're confident in who God is and you're here to, to honor Him and to worship Him in some way. But we all have some concept of God. And, and that's not just true for those of us in the room. That's true for everyone we come into contact with. There is some concept of God that everyone has. But what we are most likely to do apart from our minds being transformed by the Word of God, what we are most likely to do is to allow our imagination to fill in the gap of who God is, rather than getting to know God for who He really is. We create God in our minds. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we we, we see that uh, play out a little bit with what was happening in Athens. See, Paul is there in Athens and he looks around and he sees all of the idols that existed in the area of the city. And he says to them, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of men. Paul says, you all have, have created God, not just a God, but hundreds of gods in your own image. So much so that you have have created a stone statue of what he looks like. And and you're you're here doing all these gyrations to try to honor and to please him who was created in your image. Paul looks around and he sees that they were not coming to God saying, God, we want to get to know you. They were projecting from the inside of themselves an idea about God. And they were gathering around that. Upon pointing that out, Paul also saw that there was an altar to the unknown God. In other words, they had hundreds of altars, but even among the the Greeks, they would have said, maybe we don't have them all. There was a category for a God who was different from what they had thought about already. You know, they gave them kind of covered their bases. All of the above, none of the above, whatever it might be. they, They had another altar to that God. And Paul says, you have an understanding that there is more to God than you know. And Paul says, I'm going to take some time and explain it to you. I'm going to let you know about the God that you have this extra altar for. And I want to identify him for you because that God has revealed himself to us. Now, did Paul really think that that God, our God, was what they were thinking of when they put that altar there? I don't think so. I think he's using that altar just to to help them to think about the fact that they don't know everything that they think they know. The reason why I think that is because Paul would say to the Corinthians, just down the street from Athens in chapter 8, says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul understood that there was but one God, but Paul is going to use this category they had that they didn't know everything to help inform them about the God that they didn't know they were telling him through their statues about the gods that they had made paul now says athenians i want you to get to know the god who created you so what does he do he begins to let them know about the god who created them he begins at the very beginning and he says the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth which who is the god who is The God who is is the God who made everything. He's the God who sits sovereign over all things. The God who was never created, but created all that we know. That is where we must begin. We did not create God. He is not our crutch. He is not our idea. He is our creator, and He exists in definition as He has revealed Himself to us so that we might know Him. After reminding them that God is the one who created it all. He goes on and he says, in this God who created everything, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, the people there in Athens, they had all of these idols. They had all of these temples. They were very content with creating a representation of God created in their image, putting him over in that temple and and kind of leaving him there. The, The Greek idea was God exists in that temple. When we go to that temple, we will serve him. But when we come out here, we live life on our terms. Paul writes and says, friends, you cannot put God in a building and close the door. Guess what? The real God, the God who created it all, he can hear you. He sees you, not just when you're in this room, but when you're on the campus of the University of Oklahoma when you're walking the halls of Norman North or Norman High School. See, friends, the the reality is that he hears you at the soccer field and he hears you in your place of business and he hears you in your home and in your neighborhood. He is sovereign over all things. You can't box him up. So his truth has application and implication for each and every one of us. And he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't cease to be God if we don't honor him as such. He will will call forth praise from, from someone, but he does not need to be fed like a dog or a cat. That's how they viewed their gods. That's not the real God. That's the God that we imagine, the God that needs to be taken care of. The real God can handle his own business. By grace, he invites us to be a part of it, but he is clearly sovereign and Lord. He continues, he says this, this God, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. In other words, he doesn't need anything from us, but he has graciously given to us everything we need to live. He's given to us life. He's given to us food. He's, he's given to us this wonderful world for us to live in and to get to know him through. That's the God who is, not just the God that we imagine. But not only that, he says, and he made from One man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This God is sovereign, not just in general over humanity, but He's sovereign over us. He knows where we live. He knows what we think. He knows who we interact with. He knows what we're experiencing. Remember, we can't keep Him locked away, but He's sovereign over our real lives as we live them. And because of that, because He created us, because He has provided for us, because He has placed us in this time and this season to live our lives, we are accountable to Him. He says all these things that that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each of us. He's accessible to us. He is pursuing us. And we are accountable to Him. How are we accountable to Him? Well, we're accountable to Him Ultimately, by our response to His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in chapter 17, verse 30. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear about you again upon this. See, friends, it was in this moment that Paul said, we are accountable to this God. But what we are accountable to is our response to the one who was raised from the dead. It's our response to his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul just walks them through these people who grew up in Athens and not in the synagogue. He takes them and identifies for them, not the God that they've imagined. That's represented on all of these altars all over town but the God who actually is illuminated by the God of Scripture in the Bible. Now, we spent a fair amount of time talking about what this looks like among the Athenians. But I think it's equally important for us to think about how this connects for us. Because we live in a world that doesn't necessarily have little idols and altars all over town. Or do we? There are a number of guides and gods in our day that seek the place of ultimate authority in our lives. What are some of them? Well, one of them is the philosophy of pleasure. The philosophy of pleasure. This idea that we ought to do what feels best to us in all circumstances and in all situations. It is the prevailing God of our day. What else? How about the, the God or the guide of the passionate person. In other words, whoever feels something the most intensely in the room that you're in becomes the ultimate authority. If somebody proclaims something with a lot of energy and emotion, they must be right to believe something so strongly. This is the world in which we live. Remember, a world untethered from the fixed-point rock is trying to find something to attach to Often we attach to the most passionate person in the room, or maybe it's a political leader or a political movement that suddenly we want to attach to another party, another leader, another representative, another president, whoever it might be that that might take us to the promised land, This is one of the things that we struggle with inside of our life as we try to find a sense to bring some steadying to our boat as it rocks about these waves, or maybe it's a, a program or a group. Maybe it's not somebody inside the government, it's somebody outside of the government, but who is organized in order to try to bring some purpose or some order to life. It could be an organization of a religious origin, or it could be an organization of a purely secular origin that's united around some purpose. But we try to attach to these things to bring some sense of stability to our lives. Or it could be the propositions of science. I say propositions of science because what I mean by that is the ideas that science has that are their best ideas today, their explanations for things. In our world today, sometimes the the propositions of science would be unquestioned, even if there's not evidence to support all of what is being argued for. See, friends, we live in a world that that is trying to make sense of the life that is happening around us. See, we just won't tolerate our boat being bucked up and down and left and right. If we are not fixed to something, our lives begin to become dizzied and disoriented. And we want something to fix our lives too. So apart from anything else supernatural, we begin to create from our own imagination, gods and guides to make sense of our lives. Whether it's what we feel, whether it's the emotion of another, whether it's a political movement, whether it's a program or a group or the propositions of science, we are trying to steady our boat. And we live in a world all around us where people are trying to steady their boats with one of these things. But there's a challenge with steadying our boat to any of these things. You know what it is? These are all just other boats. Many of them with an engine on the back of it that is pointed out to open sea. If we try to, to, to tether our lives to the philosophy of pleasure, what happens when my pleasure is different than yours? We suddenly run out of explanations, and it's hard for us to live inside of a society. What happens if somebody's emotion is passionate and articulate even, but wrong? The facts aren't there. What, what, what happens if a political movement and leader that we like on issues 1, 2, and 3 wants to take the boat out to open sea on issues five, six, and seven? What happens if an organization is is offering help and assistance to somebody, even on something like an, an ethnic right issue? But they've got an engine that also wants to take it out to open sea on issues of human sexuality in the family. What happens if... Science is right here, but is being used to justify sinful behavior there. See, friends, if, if we try to level our boats by attaching our anchor to another boat, it's really only possibly stable for a moment. But there is something more solid that we can attach to. And that which is more solid is the Word of God. It's the God who is, not just the God that we imagine, as Solomon went through this, this letter to the Ecclesiastes, thinking through uh, his life, trying to find meaning, he concludes with these words. He says, "...the words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected saying, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. and much study is a wariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments." For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, good or evil. Friends, there is hope of anchoring our lives to something solid. And even if as a society we have pulled our rope off of the rock of God's truth, as followers of Christ seeking to have a Christian perspective, may we attach our lives and self and make our moral compass inside the body of Christ attached to that rock. Because on that rock, we have answers to the waves of society, right? I mean, think about it. As it relates to gender definition, how are we to know why the, 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 somebody was born male or female? I mean, that seems arbitrary. Shouldn't they be able to choose? How do we answer that? Well, we answer that not just on the power of our conviction or opinion, but we look at God's word in Genesis 127 that says that God made them male and female, that there was sovereign direction in that moment. As it relates to sexuality, how do we, who are we to say that sex is only to be experienced between a husband and wife? Why not between two men? Why not between two women? Why not outside the bounds of marriage? Well, it's not just our opinion, but it is God who created sexuality and gave it as a gift of intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's what we see in Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's not just our idea, it's God's truth. Not only that, but how about when life begins? Uh, who are we to say that life begins at the point of conception? Well, friends, We can go to God's Word. Psalm 139, verse 13 lets us know that we were knit together in our mother's womb. Long before there was ever an ultrasound to tell us that reality, it was true. Right? It's a settled question at God's Word. We can anchor to that truth. How about the priority of humanity and creation? It was in Genesis chapter 1 that God created Adam and Eve and He he placed them in a position of dominion over the earth. So there is a priority inside the created order. Now, with dominion comes responsibility. It's not like we just say that we do whatever we want to do. There's, There's care and there's concern that flows there, but there's a clear priority that shows us that humans are more important than algae. In a purely naturalistic machine, there is no differentiation but there is when we tether to the truth of God's word, and with identity politics that we are somehow most identified by some conditions of our life, god's Word would tell us that what most identifies us is the identity that we were created in, we were created in the image of God, genesis one twenty six says, and if we are in Christ, then there Galatians chapter three verses twenty seven and twenty eight lets us know that there is not male nor female. There is not Jew nor Greek. But all share the blessings of God in him. So what identifies us most dominantly is not the fact that I'm a 47-year-old white male. It's the fact that I was, I'm a human being. That therefore, I was created in the image of God. And by God's grace, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. Therefore, what most identifies me is that I'm a child of the King. And The same thing is true and available for each of us. Now, there's unity in that family. There's unity in that family. These are the waves that pound us in the ocean. And we find our anchor by anchoring back to God's truth. But when I say that, it brings up some kind of a reaction inside of you. And I'm guessing it it leads you to one of four different kinds of responses. The first response would be to say, there is no way that I'm attaching to that rock. There are some of you that are saying, hey, listen, pastor, I've, I've endured this message for far long enough, but you need to know that I am not going to attach my life to the rock of God's truth, the Bible, because you don't believe the Bible is God's word. You, you've been sold a set of, of propositions about the Bible that have said that it may be full of errors or that it's not trustworthy. You, you have felt abandoned by God in some part of your personal experience, and you just don't want any part of this. But my question to you then would be if if that is where you are today and you have tried to stabilize your boat somewhere else how is that going i want to implore you as paul did the athenians to go back to god's word and give it a chance because god is pursuing you through it because he the god who is is better than whatever god you're imagining one response is to say no way second response is to say i am fixed to the rock from long ago. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? But let me tell you what I mean by that. There are some that say, yeah, I'm fixed to the rock. I'm from Oklahoma. I grew up in Bartlesville, and because I grew up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma... See, what's funny, by the way, is that I'm I'm using an accent. I normally have an accent. You know how far I have to go to get to that point? But anyway say, I'm from Bartlesville. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm a good old boy. I, I've, I've got this down. I know what God wants. I know his truth. And I, I, I made that decision long ago. God, if it ever changes, I'll let you know. You're, you're, my, you're my God. But here's the problem with that thought. Problem with that thought is, if that's what you think, you think you know who God is. And you think your mind is programmed correctly about who God is. But there's a mighty drift that happens. When, and there's a lot of danger with assuming we know God is. Because this world is wanting to take us out to sea. Adam and Eve were in the garden walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, and they were deceived by the serpent, right? If it could happen to them, it could certainly happen to us. So I challenge that idea. Another possible response is to say, I'm fixed to the rock. I listen to or watch or read or whatever so-and-so. In other words, my my podcast game is on point. My YouTube game is unmatched. I read all of the right articles. Therefore, my perspective is calibrated. But many people who would say this are not spending time reading this. And the problem with attaching ourselves to blogs, podcasts, books, whoever, is that we might attach ourselves to a boat that might be right in one moment and take us out to sea in another God has given us something better to anchor to than just some other person's ideas. He's given us the scripture. Or you might respond and say, I'm fixed to the rock and I retie the knot daily. Friends, this is where all of us should be. This is where all of us should be. A renewed commitment to say, God, the the ocean and the motors in it, including the motor that's on my body, wants to take me away from you. I need to re-tie to your rock daily by soaking and marinating in your word, that my perspective would be your perspective, that I would not just imagine who you are, but I would get to know who you are through the revelation in your word. It begins with a commitment to do that, but then it it plays out in a, a daily pattern of discipline of going back to it. You know, all of us are quick to read articles about how the world is falling apart. We want to share those articles with others, but when's the last time you shared Scripture with a friend and said, hey, let's think about this too, that we might encourage one another to anchor not to someone else's ideas, but to the biblical truth. Friends, we've just begun this journey, and today we've been reminded that the God who is is who we should anchor to with a practical application of the revelation of who He is through his word. In the weeks ahead, we're going to begin to go beyond that to talk about who we are. That's what we're going to look at the next two weeks, who we are and how we connect to God and how that plays out in our relationships with others. And so I really hope you make plans to join us next week as we continue that study together. But before we get there, I want to pray. Lord, thank you so much for just the opportunity to open your word and to look at it. Thank you for this truth that you have given to us. I pray now that you would Um, Just help us to tether to your rock in a world with many waves that seek to sink our boat, that we would tether to you, and that we would ride out this storm, giving glory and honor to you, staying upright in this time. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.